From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father John Tregilio. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Monday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for kicking off your week with a little Open Line Monday. Father John Tregilio is in the house. If you'd like to uh, ask a question of Father John, the number is 833 833- 288-EWTN, that's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, that number is 1-205-271-2985. And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985. And you can always send us an email. That email address is line at EWTN.com. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Gubensky and Jeff Burson handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host, as he is every Monday, Father John Tregilio. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. Counting the days until orientation. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, you could say that. <laughs> <laughs> hey, listen, we're going to break with tradition here a little bit because Tammy in Cleveland, Ohio, has held through the entire top-of-the-hour break just to talk to you, Father. Wow. Tammy, you're on with Father Tregilio. <laughs> Hello. Hi, Father. Hi. Um, my, hi. My question um, is this. I am currently on some Facebook pages, both Christian and Catholic specifically, and every so often the same conversation comes up, and it actually becomes quite heated. And the question is this. During Mass, um, uh, often there are points where the priest will hold his hands up. You know, there is a name for it, but I apologize. I don't know what it is, but as a blessing or, or... giving the power of God through him to the congregants that are present. But if you look into the congregation, you will see many people with their hands outstretched, sometimes in a lower posture, but many in the same posture as the priest. Also, during the Lord's Prayer, you may see families that are holding hands or friends or whatever, and... um, my personal view is that it is a posture of supplication and humility before God, and it is act, it's sort of an outward sign of your inward, um, I, I don't know, your inward uh, strength and, and, and wanting to bring the Holy Spirit to you. But on these websites, a lot of people are very, very heated that this is incorrect, which the, the ritual is incorrect, and some people even think it's awful that it deviates from how this is supposed to um, occur in Mass. Uh, do you, how can, can you sort that out for me? <laughs> sure, sure. Uh, first of all, uh, I will make it clear that I do not think anyone who does uses these postures has any intention of, of doing anything irreverent or um, dissident 
or they're against the authority of the church. However, I think uh, the problem is that somewhere along the line, some uh, alleged liturgist had you know, mentioned this. Maybe it was a parish mission. Maybe somebody went to some um, a liberal Catholic uh, college or whatever. But technically, what it says in the, in the Roman Missal, uh, all the instructions, the general instructions of the Roman Missal, sometimes called the GERM, because the acronym is G-I-R-M, uh, but not G-E-R-M. It's not a germ in that regard. But the Roman Missal is the book that the priest uses to say Mass. And all the things that are printed in red are the instructions, and all the things that are printed in black are the things the priest must say. And in the general instruction, it sets the tone and says exactly what the posture, gestures of the priest, the deacon, and the congregation are, because public liturgy, and that's uh, the seven sacraments, and uh, especially the Holy Mass, uh, this is not uh, private uh, private um, piety, where you can do what you want. When you're praying uh, the Our Father at home, but you can hold hands if you want. Uh, you want to use what they call the Oron's position, with your hands uh, out like the priest does. Whatever you do privately is up to you. But when it's public liturgy, the Church uh, has to uh, delineate what is to be done and not to be done. And uh, Pope Benedict uh, made it so clear in his book on the liturgy when he said that um, the whole emphasis or the whole uh, substance of, of Exodus is that God told the Israelites where to go uh, to worship him and how to worship him. This is not something that they were to devise themselves. Likewise, Jesus instituted all the seven sacraments, handed on to the church to safeguard, and therefore the church doesn't create the sacraments, the church creates sacramentals, but the sacraments that the, that the church was given, she safeguards them. So uh, again, I know there are many people who like holding hands during Our Father, they like having the Orban's position during Mass, but that's not the proper posture. Um, the Church says when the people kneel, when they stand, uh, if there's legitimate options, like receiving Holy Communion on the tongue or in the hand, kneeling or standing, uh, those are legitimate options. But these are not legitimate options, holding hands during the Lord's Prayer or uh, holding the... the, the, the um, the congregation, the person in the pew holding their hands, we call the Oran's position. I, as a pastor, I'm not going to beat people up. I'm not going to make them feel, uh, uh, say that you're, you're not welcome here in church because I want them to receive the sacraments. But I would periodically remind them, this is what the rubrics say, and explain to them this is why we do what is asked of us. Um, it's just like when you're um, in any other endeavor, there's certain rules that have to be followed. And Obviously, this is not going to affect the validity or the lyceity, and is not a sign of irreverence, but it is a sign of, of, um, of submission to God's will, because you're surrendering yourself to the authority of the Church, and the Church is the one who says, these are the things we do. So again, I don't impute any motives. I think um, many of the people, almost all of them, who do these things uh, have, have good intentions, but it's not what the what the the things is specified uh, in, in the missile. Does that help, Tammy? At all? It, it helps tremendously. Thank you. An excellent answer. Yes, and and actually surprised me a little bit. I didn't realize that, and um, I'm glad I asked. Awesome. Well, thanks I'm glad for, you asked too. Yeah. Thank you for the phone call. We really really appreciate it. 
833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America, 833-288-3986. You know, I I had to, when you you referred to uh, someone as a a, a hypothetical uh, so-called liturgist... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it, it reminded me of the old the old joke. What's the difference between a liturgist and a terrorist? You can yeah, negotiate, you can negotiate with, with a terrorist. terrorist. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So again, if you'd like to be part of the program, we'd love to talk to you. That number is eight three three two eight eight E W T N eight three three two eight eight three nine eight six. And let me just throw in the caveat that I have known some spectacular liturgists. So that was, you know. It's a joke, <laughs> just to make yes. sure that, that, it's satire. That, that we're clear. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, we have an email here from um, uh, Walter, and, and this is a, a question that probably the answer needs to be nuanced a little bit, but he says, is it appropriate to pay a priest for receipt of a sacrament? <laughs> uh, it's forbidden to pay for a sacrament, it's, that's called simony. Um, what you can do, uh, you can make a free will offering. Um, and again, that, that's um, something that's done. Um, there are suggestions, but at no time can a priest demand or should it be expected that you pay because you're not paying for a sacrament. Uh, the mass stipend, uh, that's the offering the person um, gives to the priest when he offers the holy sacrifice of the Mass. And so there's what they call the fruits of the Mass. Uh, one of the fruits of the Mass goes for the person whom the Mass is being offered for. One of them goes for the person who's donated uh, the, the Mass offering. One goes to the priest, and to one goes to all the people present at that Mass. Likewise for baptism, um, for weddings, uh, when the bishop comes uh, at confirmation. Uh, these are offerings, uh, they're called honoraria. Uh, they're not part of his salary. Uh, and again, no, any priest is forbidden to demand these things, but people can offer them. And when Father Brigenti and I wrote the book, Catholicism for Dummies, that was one of the things people asked us is, what's the typical, and we made it very clear, this is not a fee, this is an offering. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. It's Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call one 205 271 or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. You know, we just recently celebrated the Feast of St. Kateri Tekakwitha, uh, also known as the Lily of the Mohawks, and we've got a beautiful statue from EWTN's religious catalog. It depicts the very beautiful post-mortem image of the saint. When St. Kateri died in 1680, witnesses said that her emaciated face changed color and became like that of a healthy child. 
Um, she had lines of suffering, even the smallpox scars that she bore from the time she was four years old. They suddenly disappeared, and the touch of a smile came upon her lips shortly after her death. The statue is made of a resin mix, and it's 16 and a half inches tall, and each one is individually hand-painted. It's available now at EWTN's Religious Catalog. That's EWTNRC.com. Free standard shipping right now on online orders of $75 or more. Standard shipping in the continental U.S. only. Use the code FREE at checkout. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number with your questions for Father John Tregilio, the author of Catholicism for Dummies, the co-author of Catholicism for Dummies, the longtime host of Web of Faith. Uh, at your disposal, live and in living color today here on EWTN's Open Line Monday. So if you have a question, give us a call. Got a couple of open phone lines at 833-288-3986. Next up today is Bill in the great state of Alabama, listening on Guadalupe Radio. Bill, you are on with Father John Tregilio. Good afternoon. Thanks for taking the call. Go right ahead. Uh, uh I have a question. Uh, as far as the Bible goes, how does one make the determination, or how was the determination made of what actually was Holy Scripture and what wasn't? I understand that uh, I learned later in life that you have the Maccabees and you have other things, the books that were not included in the Bible, in King James Version that I have was raised on. So how do you know which one's real and which one isn't? Okay, well, that, that's a v- excellent question, and um, we want to go uh, back to the beginnings, obviously. The Bible itself doesn't give us a list of the books that belong in the Bible. The publisher of the Bible, uh, the company that makes it, has a, ta- a, a, contents, a table of contents, and they tell you what the books of the Bible are. But nowhere in sacred scripture itself, from the book of Genesis, the very first book, or the book of Revelation, the very last book, and everything in between, at no point do they say inside the text, these are the texts of sacred scripture, and everything else is, is not. So since scripture itself doesn't tell us, we rely on the authority of the Church, which again is not in competition with the sacred scripture, but the Church was the one who um, was entrusted with sacred scripture, and as uh, Catholic Christians, we believe that God speaks to us, divine revelation comes to us through both sacred scripture and sacred tradition. And they're, again, they're not enemies, uh, it's not either or, it's both and. And sacred tradition uh, is the one that we rely upon, because there we see at particular councils of the Church, uh, the books of the Bible, the canon of scripture, uh, the word canon uh, comes from the word meaning read, a, a measuring stick, and the, the measuring of what books belong in the Bible okay, goes back to the apostolic times, and they determined that uh, the 27 books, 27 books of the New Testament that are exactly the same in the Catholic Bible or the same as in the Protestant, uh, especially in the King James Bible, the 46 books of the Old Testament, um, which include the seven books uh, what we call the Deuterocanonical books, uh, in the Protestant tradition, they're, they're called the Apocrypha, but those 46 books were known and recognized at the time of Christ and the early Church. It wasn't until 
uh, Martin Luther in the 16th century, uh, when he started the, the Reformation, that the, those seven books were removed from the Christian Bible. The Jewish um, leaders took out those seven books of the Old Testament after the time of Christ, when the Temple of Jerusalem uh, was destroyed in 70 A.D. by the, by the Romans, and then at the Council of Jamnia uh, in, in 100 A.D., they pulled them out, and only, the only reason why they pulled them out was because they were written in Greek. Uh, the other 39 books were written in Hebrew. Those seven books were written in, in Greek because uh, most of the world's Jews were in what we call the diaspora. They were scattered throughout the world. Uh, the Babylonians uh, made sure that they didn't want them all living in the same spot. So more Jews spoke Greek than spoke Hebrew. So that's why those seven books uh, of the Old Testament, uh, including Tobit, Maccabees, uh, and Book of Wisdom, and so forth, uh, they were written in in Greek, but by Jewish uh, people who spoke Greek, and that's what we call the Septuagint. That's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So when Christianity comes, it just takes with it what was uh, accepted by the Jews, and from Jesus all the way to uh, the 16th century. In fact, you go to the Gutenberg Bible that's on display, uh, you'll see that all 46 books are in that uh, wonderful uh edition of, of, of the Bible. And so it's not that the Catholic Church inserted, it's that we kept those seven books. Martin Luther uh, pulled them out. What's interesting is when you see a lot of Protestant Bibles, though, they'll put them in the back of the book as apocrypha. Well, if they're not considered sacred scripture, why are they, why are they there at all? And it's sort of like, well, we, we're, not, we're not comfortable removing them. Uh, in fact, uh, you know, that was one of the big contentions between Martin Luther and, and, and uh, Melanchthon, one of his followers. Uh, he also wanted to remove the book, uh, the Epistle of St. James. And Melanchthon says, look, you know, you can pull books out of the Old Testament, but you've got to leave the New Testament uh, alone. So uh, that determination goes back, again, to apostolic times, early church um, uh, councils, uh, I think as early as the 100s, 200s, 300s, we have uh, an establishment of the canon. Now, uh, the Council of Trent made it very solemn uh, in, this, in the 16th century because Martin Luther questioned that, but Christianity as a whole accepted all 46 books of the Old Testament up until uh, the time of, of, of Martin Luther. Does that help, Bill? An additional May I ask an additional question? Absolutely. Then what you're saying, if I'm, if I'm hearing you correctly, all of the books are considered sacred and, and, and are holy and are the Word of God. My belief is that the Word of God came down through men and was penned, and it is actual infallible. It's, it is the infallible Word of God. That's my belief. Yes. But I've also, we, we I've, also heard, I've also heard that anything that within my Bible uh, that, ha that is in italicies, italics, I beg your pardon, what was added by transcribers of the Bible. Is that true? Well, the, the problem is that italics and bold and other uh, editorial things weren't, weren't used at the time of the sacred authors. Uh, we believe that the Holy Spirit inspired the sacred authors to write those things and only those things that God wanted written. Um, what's interesting is that the original manuscripts, like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, um, you know, the book of Genesis, had no chapter or verse that was added, okay, uh, like a thousand years after 
the texts were written in, in the New Testament, uh, a bishop and a priest thought, it, you know, this would make it convenient. So, you know, everybody likes to quote, you know, John 3.16, but when John wrote it, there was no 3, there was no 16. So the editorializing, uh, like uh, capitalization, question marks, italics, and that, that's an editorial tool that's used. The sacred author did not have that, but that doesn't mean that it's not proper to be there, because to read it today, you know, it'd be almost impossible for us uh, in our century, in our time, to read the sacred text without punctuation marks, without capitalization, without all those things. So, uh, yeah, I wouldn't say that it, that, that they're um, they don't belong there, but we have to realize that the sacred author himself did not use that. But the text, the text was was what's authentic. That's the key point there. The words, the exact words, and we certainly believe that those are the exact words the Holy Spirit wanted written. Thanks, Bill. We appreciate the phone call today. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Anna Marie is watching us on YouTube, and she said, Did Jesus lower himself or raise us when he washed the apostles' feet? Well, it's a little both uh, in the sense that he wanted to show uh, service. You know, he came. He said, I came to serve. Uh, not be served. So uh, there is this, uh, what they call uh, kenosis, where, you know, he lowers himself so that he can bring us up. All right, that's the purpose of him lowering himself uh, in the hypostatic union, where Jesus, uh, in his divine nature, uh, hypostatically united uh, to his human nature, he lowers himself, he relinquishes a lot of the privileges of the fact that he is the second person of the Trinity, uh, and therefore He's, he's, he suffers, he he's, uh, feels pain, he's able to die. Uh, that's something that, you know, his, his human nature did not have to endure, but he freely embraced that. But as St. John Chrysostom also says, we were divinized in Christ. So he lowers himself, he, he raises us up. So it's, it's both of them are going on at the same time. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. We'd love for you to give us a phone call today. Plenty of time for your calls here on EWTN's Open Line Monday. The toll-free number is 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, that number is 1-205-271-2985. And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line if you are outside of the United States and Canada at 1-205-271-2985. Tim would like to know, how can we as lay people of the Church minister to people to help them understand the healing process of an annulment and the blessing of a sacramental marriage as opposed to settling for a civil marriage? Okay, well... um it, it's it's not easy, but it's something that that needs to be done. And so, anytime you're in a situation where someone that you know and love, uh, that you have a relationship with, is considering uh, getting married outside the church or has already done so, um, you want to do it always with charity, with discretion, okay, with kindness. Uh, you don't want to challenge somebody at the at the family dinner table and say, "Hey, when you get your marriage uh, rectified here," but Many people 
are never invited or, or the idea isn't even suggested to them. A lot of parents, uh, siblings. Now, Jesus said a prophet is not without honor except in his own house. So, you know, not everyone's going to jump at the chance and say, oh, thank you, I'm going to do it right away. However, I also know when I worked at the tribunal, a lot of people never even knew that it existed. Uh, annulment is not a Catholic divorce. An annulment, a decree of nullity, is the Church's official judgment that the marriage in question was never a valid sacrament. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. It's Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. And we were discussing an email from Tim about what lay people can do uh, to help proclaim the good news of sacramental marriage. And uh, probably the best thing people can do if you're married is to live out your sacramental marriage. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. You give a good example. And again, this is never a guarantee. So, but always suggest to someone who is in an invalid marriage, why don't you call the tribunal of your diocese to see if that previous marriage uh, was indeed valid? And again, they don't point the finger and blame and said it's his fault, her fault. Could have been both. Could have been neither. Uh, you know, both couples, both persons of the marriage have to intend to enter a, a permanent, a faithful, and God-willing, fruitful union. And if one or all three of those are missing, it's not a valid marriage. You can be married by the Pope, the bishop, and if you're missing one of those criteria, it's invalid. That's why the Church can make that decision. But uh, it is cathartic because it helps heal a, a wound that was there, um, you know, that needs to be taken care of. Yep. And, and in this day and age, in our culture, especially here in America, uh, you know, there's a with with the lack of marriage formation that's going on. Uh, there's probably a pretty good chance that there may have been an impediment there. Yeah, that's, that's sadly you're you're right. And um, I know we, I saw it as a priest for 34 years, and you know so that's why the church is here to help. As a priest in a parish. You don't you don't want to infer that you're no longer a priest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I want to make sure everybody knows that. <laughs> next I'm up still is kosher. <laughs> next up is Taylor, a first time caller in the great state of Nebraska. She's listening to Spirit Catholic Radio. Taylor, you're on with Father John. Hi, Father. So my question for you is um when Jesus washes the disciples' feet and Peter says, um, you won't wash my feet or whatever, and then Jesus says, unless you let me wash your feet, you will not have eternal life. Can we take this as a typology, um, again, referencing confession? Uh, it could be. I mean, the Church has not ruled definitively uh, that that's the only interpretation, but I've heard that, that was that that's possible. Um, some, some of the great uh, patristics and fathers of the Church and spiritual writers have uh, proposed that, but other... Uh, hypotheses, um, but I would say too that you know if you want to have another interpretation, uh, you know uh, that uh, Peter just needed to rely and trust more in Christ. He wanted to be in charge, so to speak, and you know said no, don't wash me. And Jesus said, look, you got to be washed. Um, but the, the fact is that not all were washed clean, referring to the fact that 
Judas had not opened his heart to repentance. His heart was closed to, to God's grace. St. Peter needed to be washed. And yes, uh, we are cleansed of our sins, first in baptism, and then secondly in the sacrament of penance, uh, going to confession. Thanks so much, Taylor. We appreciate the question today. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. We'll keep with our theme of answering questions from smart women in Nebraska by going to Omaha, where Veronica is listening, also on Spirit Catholic Radio. Veronica, you're on with Father Tregilio. Hi. I have a question, and sadly I don't have a lot of information anymore. But I read a book about a um, supposed... Hi, are you, can you hear me? Now Hello? Can, yes. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay, sorry about that. Anyway, I no read problem. a book. Okay, I read a book about a coming of Jesus before the second coming, and that... Um, um, Predictions of this have been going on since the early part of this century, where Jesus is appearing to people and telling them that he is going to give people a chance to repent, and that he's going to stop the world and appear and let people see their sins and have a chance of repentance. And then after a little time of giving people this opportunity to turn back to him, then he will resume the world back to its usual situation. And like I said, this is going to happen before the second coming, before the final judgment. And I was wondering, are there any positions that the Church has on this? I've actually seen this book advertised in Catholic catalogs, um, and it's well-known people who are giving their testimonies, but I was wondering if there is a position on, by the Church on this idea. Okay, well, this, the Church certainly does not embrace the totality of, of that concept, because it is called the Second Coming for a reason. The First Coming was when Jesus, through the Incarnation, uh, was conceived and born uh, here on Earth uh, through the Virgin Mary. His Second Coming is at the end of time. So number two means there's nothing in between one and two. So there's no little uh, second coming of Christ. There's just the first coming and then the second coming of Christ. Um, every day we have an opportunity to repent of our sins, and it's particular judgment that happens at the moment of our particular death that you and I need to be concerned about. The general judgment is at the end of time, at the second coming of Christ, when the dead are raised, the resurrection of the dead, and it's the end of the world, and everybody's going to be it's going to be manifested who got to heaven, why they got to heaven, who went to hell, why they ended up in hell. Um, but these private revelations, okay, the church tolerates as long as people realize that these are private. They can never contradict public revelation, which ended with with uh, Saint John and the Book of Revelation, and so. Anything that's, that sounds like it's adding or changing what we know uh, through divine revelation of sacred scripture and sacred tradition, uh, we're commanded to say, no, that's not part of, of, of our faith. Now, it doesn't mean that people can, can't speculate or people have had apparitions. Um, I mean, you know, our, the blessed Lord, our Jesus spoke to, uh, appeared to Margaret Mary 
uh, Alacoque uh, and promoted the devotion to the Sacred Heart. He appeared to St. Faustina asking for devotion to Divine Mercy. Uh, but in all these cases, these private revelations, you are not obligated to believe in the particular uh, uh, details of that. It's private. But the message can never contradict what we know uh, through public uh, revelation. And this sounds a little bit like millennialism, which uh, some Christians believe that Jesus is going to come back sort of like one and a half times or something. Uh, it's before the second coming, which would then make it the third. Uh, you're using chronology. And that he's going to establish uh, a thousand-year reign or something like that. Uh, that's part of later uh, Christian hypothesis. Uh, it's not part of the Catholic Church, it's not part of the Eastern Orthodox Church. Does that help, Veronica? Yes, it does. I appreciate the clarification. Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks so much for the phone call today. Uh, that you're opens welcome. up a line for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. We head next to Miami, Florida. Adriana is in Miami, listening, uh, watching us rather on YouTube today. Adriana, you're on with Father John Tregilio. Hi, Father John. Good afternoon. Thank you for receiving me. I have a question, Father. I have a neighbor that um, she is Greek Orthodox, and I've been, you know, trying to give her some advice. She just recently had a Catholic priest go bless her home, and then just, you know, about three weeks ago, she burned sage in her home, and also she has the evil eye, like, over her door, and she says it's part mm. of the Greek culture. And then everything started to break in her house, the washer, a lot of things started to break and having marital problems after she did the stage and all of this. How can I advise her father and to help her in this? Well, I would say, first of all, if, if she's Greek Orthodox, you know, uh, suggest she speak to her, her pastor, because uh, I am positive, I am absolutely positive the Greek Orthodox priest is not going to condone uh, burning sage, uh, using the evil eye, or anything that's not part of the Christian faith. They're on the same page as we are in, in terms of, you know, God's providence, uh, he's in charge, and we're to avoid things that sound of magic. Um, now, using holy water is not magic, it's a sacramental, um, and we use, Catholic, we use holy water in the Roman Church. They use uh, holy water in the Eastern Orthodox Church. Certainly using holy water is, is, is a good thing, but burning sage and using things that sound or relying on the evil eye, uh, that's more of the occult. Magic is where you manipulate things, okay? Religion is where we allow God to influence us. Does that help, Adriana? Sure. Yes, that helps a lot. Thank you. And listen, I can let me give you another little a little another little tip here is that if you'll go to my wife's website, womenofgrace.com, womenofgrace.com and click on blog in the in the the nav bar up to the top of the page, you'll see when you go to the blog page on the right-hand side, there's a category of new age and it's probably one of the most extensive if not the most extensive new age blog uh, maintained primarily by Sue Brinkman, who has studied this for a quarter of a century. And any questions or anything that comes up, I'm sure you'll find an answer for it uh, in that part of their website. Well, thank you so much. God bless you all. 
And God bless you. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. EWTN Radio Essentials special programming alert this Thursday, July 28th at 9.30 a.m. Eastern Time. We'll be covering uh, Pope Francis in Canada, his Holy Mass from the Basilica of St. Anne de Beaupre in Quebec City. Uh, and that will be covered live on EWTN Radio Essentials. You can find that on the EWTN app or at EWTN.com slash radio. Next up is Brian in the Republic of Texas. He's listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Brian, you're on with Father John. Hey, Father John. Hello. Hey, I, I was just following up with what Veronica called in about. I think the, the what she was talking about, what is... is defined by, uh, you know, many Catholics as the illumination of our conscience, which was spoken about and revealed by several saints in history. And it was a situation where it was interpreted that there's going to be a time when our sins are known for everybody at the same time, and they're actually, and you'll see basically what, that, what, what those sins did to everybody around you and, and so forth, kind of like the butterfly effect, how it affects, you know, several people down the road. What the general judge is going to be. Okay. You're, I understand that, yeah, but they I, actually... Not, yeah. The question is, when the saints said that you'll have an opportunity at that point to repent, I think that's what she's getting at. Like, So when a saint says something and he's fully in the body of Christ in heaven... Yeah. Is what they're saying to be interpreted as not true? And if it's not true, then how could they possibly be in the body of Christ? Well, I mean, you're using good logic there. Um, just because um, a saint wrote something while they were alive doesn't mean that everything that they said or wrote was infallible. Only uh, the Pope is infallible, the bishops united with him, and special circumstances are infallible. But otherwise, the saints, as holy people as they are, uh, do not have the charism of infallibility, which means you know you cannot say that everything they said or taught was absolutely true. Um, and so some of the private revel again, private revelation can never contradict public revelation. And so we believe uh, officially, it's part of our de fide, uh, it's in the Catechism, it's in Denziger's Incaridian Symbolorum, uh, as part of the, the you know the positive faith that um, you know there will be a general judgment when all will be made known, and then in the meantime, you and I have to rely upon what we know, uh, and that is where making a good confession regularly is so important. We can't depend on the, on some speculation that sometime Jesus is going to maybe give us a better opportunity by revealing all these things because all these things are available. Other people's sins do not have an effect on my salvation. Uh, I know what I did, uh, and if I don't remember what I did, there's where I need to make an examination of conscience. Uh, but uh, it, it sounds almost like, you know, like when you're doing your income tax and you submit your return, and all of a sudden the IRS sends it back and says, well, you made some mistakes here, you've you got to correct them. Uh, that works in that regard, but in terms of our, our spiritual life, uh, God you know, takes us at our, where we're at at that moment. Uh, what did I know when I did it? How free was I when I when I committed the act? And that's why making a good confession 
is the best thing that you can do, um, having any other esoteric information. So um, again, just because it's a, a saint or a, you know a, an alleged um, you know writing of somebody, um, it's true. If someone is a canonized saint and they're in heaven, um, and they and you hear something that contradicts uh, what we've already known by faith, that might not be the saint talking. <laughs> the devil uh, likes to appear as an angel of light, and he can you know impersonate even a, a, a saint if he wanted to. Thanks so much. We appreciate the phone call today. Next stop is Houston, Texas. Uh, Bob is in Houston, listening on Guadalupe Radio. Bob, thanks for holding. Welcome to the program. Well, thanks for having me on. Uh, the uh, uh, the question that I have is, when did the Catholic Church decide that if you ate meat on Friday, uh, or if you didn't go to church on Sunday, you would not go to hell? Because when I was a little boy uh, in the late fifties, uh, that was that was big time. You, if you eat meat on Friday, you're going straight to hell. When did the Catholic Church change that? So- okay, well that's that's a fair question. Um, the Church changed, uh, and again these are disciplinary laws, so they're not like the moral law. So we can't change the commandments. Ten commandments are always uh, in place, and they cannot be abrogated amended or anything added to it. Um, church law, okay, this is what we call the precepts of the Church, going to Mass on Sundays and Holy Days, uh, fasting, abstaining on days appointed. The Church has the authority to decide what days are appointed, and so prior to the Second Vatican Council, every Friday uh, throughout the whole year was considered uh, a day of abstinence from meat, and uh, there were other days during the year, and the problem was that over time, people were, in the ancient times, you know, if you had a piece of meat, you know, th- that was a privilege. So if you got it on a, on a Friday, you weren't allowed to eat it. That was the sacrifice. But today, so many people are not eating meat, uh, and that includes, that's chicken, beef, uh, pork, all right? Uh, everybody asks, does white meat count? Yes, it does. Um, but I remember when I was growing up, and we still had the Universal Friday abstinence, I had relatives who would go to Red Lobster and get a lobster tail. They would get uh, crab legs. They would get shrimp cocktails. And say, "Well, it's not. It's not Friday, so we're not eating meat." It was supposed to be penitential. That's why, after the Second Vatican Council, uh, the law was was modified, and it's uh, even in the eighty-three Code of Canon Law that um, you can substitute on Fridays outside of Lent other penitential acts. But for instance, let's say you're a, a, a vegetarian. You don't, you don't eat meat at all. You should do something on Fridays, especially Fridays of Lent and Good Friday. And so you can't just rely on the fact, well, I don't, I don't, eat, I don't eat meat ever. Uh, and those people who, who, let's say you're poor, uh, you know, and, and you're, that's the only meat, food you have, you're allowed to eat that, all right? The reason why it was a mortal sin is because somebody was saying the Church had no authority uh, to make these decisions. It wasn't that the meat itself was... Uh, possessed or is intrinsically evil, it was the fact that someone saying, no one's going to tell me what to do, okay? It's just like your dad said, you be back at, you, you come home at 10 o'clock. Well, what if he said, come, come home at, at quarter to 10? You know, he decided what time, all right? I'm defying his authority uh, by saying that, you know, I'm not going to come back at 10. It's not the issue of the 10, it's the issue that he has the authority to, to, to expect that of me. Um. 
Cresta in the afternoon right here on EWTN Radio. This afternoon at 4 p.m. Eastern, Dale Alquist is going to be on with Al talking about the 100th anniversary of the conversion of G.K. Chesterson. And also Dr. John Bruhalski is going to talk about how Divine Mercy changed his mind on the subject of abortion. That's Cresta in the afternoon, 4 p.m. Eastern time right here on EWTN Radio. Next up is Joe in North Liberty, Indiana, listening on Redeemer Radio. Joe, you're on with Father John. Thank you. I was uh, wondering about the, I think it's referred to as the third secret of Fatima, where uh, Our Lady said that the seers shouldn't reveal this message until a certain time. Well, then I understand that certain popes have read part of it or all of it, and but never made it known. To people, and I was just curious to why that would, why Our Lady would want to hold back information about anything. Okay, well that that's a, a good question. And um, Pope John Paul, Saint John Paul, uh, did disclose what the third secret was. Some people just didn't like it. <laughs> you know, uh, the, the the secrets of Fatima were entrusted uh, by Mary. Okay. Uh, to the, the three children, and uh, it was they were told, you are to give this to the Holy Father, okay? And the first two secrets were divulged. The third, for the longest time, was kept secret. It's the Pope's prerogative, if he wanted to reveal it, to reveal it. And so uh, other, like Pius XII didn't uh, divulge the third secret. Uh, Pope Paul VI didn't. John XXIII didn't. Pope John Paul I didn't. John Paul II did, and... Uh, Cardinal Ratzinger at the time, now uh, Pope Benedict XVI, uh, he made it clear that uh, this secret that was re- announced by the Vatican, that was the secret. Some people are saying, oh no, uh, it, it's going to tell you who's the Antichrist. It's going to tell you uh, when the world is going to end. Well, no, the Church makes it clear that uh, she has the authority to, to speak, and uh, the third secret was revealed, and it basically was uh, the, the, the um, prophesying that uh, the Pope was going to be attacked, and John Paul was. Uh, Ali Ekstra, uh, uh, you know, attempted to assassinate him, uh, and thankfully uh, his life was spared, and Pope John Paul uh, believed that it was Our Lady of Fatima that saved his life. That's why he took the bullet that was, you know, almost killed him and put it in the crown of the statue of Our Lady of Fatima that's at the shrine in Fatima in in Portugal. But I know some people didn't like when, when it was announced what the secret was, they said, well, that's not the secret I want. Well, this isn't X-Files, okay? Uh, there isn't some big conspiracy uh, holding things back. And again, private revelation can never contradict public revelation. Jesus said, you know not the day nor the hour. So if that's the case, why would his mother try to spill the beans and put the, 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 the time of, uh, and date of the end of the world when he says it's not for us to know? Uh, next up is Patricia right here in Spanish Fort, Alabama, Listen, uh, watching us on YouTube. Patricia, you're on with Father John Tregilio. Hello, Father. I have just met my, my first Mormon, and um, she comes to my Christian spin classes. And I was wondering how do I evangelize to her, be, me being a devout Catholic and her being a Mormon. Is there a book that I could read that could help me understand Mormonism? and the differences between the two. I know that hers is more of a cult, and ours is more of a faith, but I just was wondering if there's something that I could do to help her realize where she's at. 
Yeah, I, I do believe there's a couple books written by former uh, Mormons who then became Catholic. I, none of their titles come out the, the top of my mind right now, but I'm sure uh, I, I know we have things available at the uh, at the catalog here at EWTN because we had some former Mormons who became Catholic on Marcus Grody's uh, program, uh, and you can find these things, uh, you know, uh, very easily. Um, uh, yeah, we see re- Mormonism. In fact, it was um, Cardinal Ratzinger again uh, that the Church declared that the Mormon baptisms were not uh, the same as uh, our baptisms, so they're not valid. Um, I know that was a little, you know, irritation to to the Mormons, but it's it's a fact because they have a different uh, theology. I mean, they're not really Trinitarian, but we can still talk to them in a very civil, charitable kind way and uh, work together on things, you know, like prote- protecting the sanctity of life. At the same time, you know, sharing with them, okay, sharing with them that our belief that, you know, Jesus is indeed uh, the Son of God. He's the second person of the Trinity. Uh, that uh, what is in the Bible is sufficient. You don't need the Book of Mormon, uh, but you don't want to be confrontational because this isn't a, d- a debate where you're going to win by argument, but by invitation and showing that you know, your, your Christian faith means so much to you that you're going to live it every way you can. But um, I, I, I'm sorry, I don't have any titles at the top of my mind, That, but I do know that there are former Mormons who became Catholic, and, you know, they give you a wonderful, uh, not just story of, of their um, uh, journey of faith, but members of their family as well. Yeah, Patricia, if you go to uh, EWTN's Religious Catalog, that's EWTNRC.com, EWTNRC.com, and type in Mormon into the search window, and you will get all sorts of titles uh, to uh, peruse there. We are flat out of time. My apologies to Patricia in the great state of Wisconsin. Give us a call back. Father John, would you leave us with a blessing? Benedicam vos omnipotens Deus, Pater et Filius et Spiritus Sanctus. Amen. Amen. On behalf of our host, Father John Tregilio, our producer, Michael McCall, call screener Matt Kubensky and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line Monday. Back at it tomorrow with Father Wade Menezes. Until then, God bless.